welcome to Books in the Wild, the podcast about exploring books. I'm Carrie Schroeder. We are now on our second October Halloweenish episode, so I'm going to see how much longer I can stretch this out. Tonight we have a true crime tale of a 19th century English bookbinder gone bad, The Murder of Toolmaker John Paz by bookbinder James Cook. And then for some added perspective, I interview bookbinder and toolmaker Brian Beidler. Quick warning. This story is particularly gory, though I try not to be too gratuitous with details. Not only was the crime itself gruesome, but perhaps ironically, the punishment for the crime was so appalling that amendments were made for more ethical execution methods based on this case. But if you listen to regular true crime podcasts or Unsolved Mysteries or the news, you'll be fine. However, if you are especially squeamish or with children or pets who are squeamish, please listen at your own discretion. I also use the full names of James Cook and John Paz quite a bit, and that's because even just writing it out using just the first names John and James became confusing, and then just using the last names Cook and Paz just sounded weird to me, like they would be a good crime-fighting cat duo or something. So I'm aware of the repetition but I felt like it was the best option for clarity. So now sit back, relax, and do whatever it is you do when you listen to tales of grisly murder. Our scene opens in late May in the year 1832 in England. John Paz is a 49-year-old engraver and toolmaker from London that has just set out on his regular business trip across the country, selling his wares and collecting debts from open accounts. This particular trip was going to be a long one, spending a couple of months traveling the English countryside by carriage. It is unusually warm for this time of year as well, and John Paz is already worn out from the journey. He finishes up in Liverpool first, visiting bookbinders and shopkeepers. It's been a productive trip so far, even if tiresome. Up next on his route is the town of Leicester, a developing industrial area in Midlands, England. John cringes. A young bookbinder in Leicester named James Cook owes him money from a past order of a rather nice set of brass finishing tools, if he does say so himself. The problem is, James Cook gives John Paws the creeps. John much preferred to deal with the master bookbinder, Mr. Johnson, as he had for years, but sadly the old man passed unexpectedly and left the business to his apprentice, 21-year-old James Cook. Although an adept bookbinder, Cook isn't a great businessman and is having a difficult time managing the bindery and clients' orders and keeping up with accounts. The stress has made the already nervous and strange man more nervous and stranger. John Paz's carriage pulls up in front of the Stag and Pheasant Inn, a fairly modern-looking building near town center. He greets the innkeeper and pays for a room for the night, having a meal in the dining room before retiring early in the evening. Though John is exhausted from his long journey, he has trouble falling asleep that night. The room feels stifling warm, and the bed seems to have shrunk around him, crowding him, filling him with claustrophobic unease. John spends the night tossing and turning in a mild sweat, 
His mind eventually drifts into a fitful half-sleep that snaps awake with every unfamiliar noise in the room. After a restless night, John awakes in the morning with a feeling of malaise. He feels as if something is off about today, but he chalks it up to a poor night's sleep. He sits down in the dining area, and the innkeeper enters the room. Good morning, Mr. Pass. How was your stay last night? I must say, I did not rest well. The bed is uncomfortably small and it sags, and the room is stiflingly warm. I felt as if a weight was pressed upon my chest all evening. Oh dear, my apologies, Mr. Pass. Perhaps I can offer you another room that might be more suitable. Don't bother. I doubt I shall be returning here tonight. John finishes his breakfast and plans his rounds for the morning. The first stop is to collect the past due payment from the bookbinder, James Cook. James Cook's bindery is situated behind the Flying Horse Inn, down a narrow yard leading from Willington Street. Upon entering the shop, James Cook is nervous and fidgeting. He pays John Paws a portion of his 25-pound bill and asks for an extension on the rest. John accepts and tells him he will be back later in the evening for the remainder. John finishes his rounds to the other shops in the area, showing his finishing tools, giving demonstrations, and dreading his return to Cook's Bindery. He eventually makes his way back to the shop a little after 6 p.m. John exits the carriage and steps up to the door and takes a deep breath before entering. The air is tense and eerie in the workshop. James seems calmer and colder than before. He dismisses his apprentice, leaving just he and the toolmaker alone in the shop. Mr. Cook's bookbinding apprentice would be the last person to see Mr. John Paz alive. John's unease is clear. Everything in the bindery appears threatening. There's a large standing press in the corner, a, a common enough bindery item, but now it feels oppressive and towering, like a statuesque gargoyle keeping watch. The leather paring knives mounted to the wall gleam ominously from the last rays of sunlight peering through the dusty windows. Books are strewn all around in various stages of completion, some with their sewing exposed waiting for covers to be attached, others crushed in iron presses. Everything appears to look so sinister, like a Biblio torture chamber. John Paz snaps out of his fearful thoughts and notices James staring at him. However, the man is making no attempt to offer money or explanation for the matter at hand. The now wild-looking bookbinder has a certain gleam in his eye that John can't quite decipher. James steps forward toward the toolmaker menacingly. John takes a step back and raises his hands defensively. So, you've come to collect. Uh, 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 oh, well, yes, um, but if you need me, uh, if you need more time, Mr. Cook, I'll, I shall be happy to return the mirror. 
No need to return, Mr. Paz. I would prefer to settle our affairs right now, once and for all. Now, uh, it's, it's really quite all right, Mr. Cook. Uh, uh, James, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll wait. wait. What are you doing with that iron? Settling debts, Mr. Paz! It's around midnight when neighbors witness a red glow emanating from the newly boarded up windows of Cook's Bindery. A crowd gathers on the street, and fearing that the building was on fire, they break down the door. Thick black smoke billows out of the room. Once inside, the crowd is met with an overpowering stench of burning meat coming from the fireplace. But the space appears to be empty. The group works together to put out the fire, dousing the flames with water. The chimney and the fireplace are blocked with something large. They unblock the chimney with a stick and try to encourage the smoke to leave. What they remove from the hearth is a fairly large piece of charred flesh. It is in the still dark early morning when the crowd starts to disperse. Cook actually returns to the bindery and appears angry at the intrusion. He tells them that he was only cooking horse meat for his dog. Why are all these people in his shop? The story sounded suspicious, not only because a man was claiming to cook horse meat in a fireplace for a dog at midnight, right after boarding up all of the windows and then fleeing the scene, but also because James Cook didn't own a dog. A few townspeople, unimpressed by Cook's dubious tale, sent out for the constable to investigate. When the constable arrives in the morning, unsurprisingly, James Cook is nowhere to be found. The constable, along with the town surgeon, search Cook's bindery. From the surgeon's notes, they discovered, quote, the lower part of a human body a short way up the chimney, which appeared to have been severed a little above the hips, and which by that point consisted of two thighs and part of one leg belonging to a man. In the ashes of the fire were various garments, namely the collar of a coat, a gaiter, brace buckles. They uncovered a metal snuff box and pencil case engraved with the name Paz. The remains were further examined by two other surgeons, who confirmed that the flesh was indeed human and not horse. When questioned, witnesses, including Cook's own apprentice, admitted seeing John Paz enter the bindery, and yet no one saw him leave. This is followed by reports of Cook gambling in the public house late into the night, with a newly obtained green silk coin purse full of cash. The men are now fairly certain that this is the body of Mr. John Paz. Descriptions of James Cook and his alleged crimes are dispatched to all neighboring towns, along with a 200-pound reward offer. Despite all the evidence and witnesses, Cook manages to avoid capture for nearly a month. He is finally arrested when it is learned that he has purchased tickets to sail to America on extended holiday. Cook is already on board the ship, awaiting departure when the constable and his men corner him. He actually jumps overboard and manages to swim ashore, only to be met with the lawmen waiting for him there. Then Cook tried to commit suicide by quickly drinking a bottle of laudanum, but then he is overtaken by the constable's men. James Cook is then taken into custody and questioned. He admits to bludgeoning John Paz with an iron press pen and then dismembering the corpse. Then he borrowed a mop from his neighbor and attempted to clean up the mess. He said that this made him a little sick, so he took a break to help another neighbor milk some cows. When he returned to his shop, he finishes up by boarding up the windows, 
stuffing the rest of the body into the fireplace and chimney, and then setting it on fire. Then he went gambling at the Flying Horse Inn, betting money stolen from John Paz on a game called Skittles. The trial of James Cook took place on August 8, 1832, to a packed courthouse. During the trial, which lasted only an hour, Mr. Cook seemed oblivious, nonchalant, reading from the New Testament rather than listening to any of the proceedings. The jury found Mr. Cook guilty, and the judge sentenced him to be executed by hanging, and that his body be suspended in chains in the town square for public display, a practice known as gibbeting. James Cook is executed just two days later, on August 10, 1832, in front of Welford Prison. A crowd of as many as 40,000 people gathered to watch. Mr. Cook calmly accepted his fate, walking to the gallows, his only request being that a specific sermon be preached at St. Mary's Church the following Sunday. Judges 29 And when he was come into his house, he took a knife and laid hold on his concubine, and divided her, together with her bones, into twelve pieces, and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. James Cook was hanged and his body placed in an iron contraption to be secured to a thirty-foot-high post and displayed for all the town to see. This contraption, called a gibbet, was used for gibbeting. Cook's corpse is then hoisted up on the side of Saffron Lane in Leicester for three days before some residents start to realize, hey, y'all, this is pretty messed up. I mean, we're all seeing this, right? This doesn't seem gross in every way possible to anyone else. After more protests and pleas to authorities, Cook's body is removed from display. And by the end of the year in 1832, Gibbeting is officially banned in Britain. The case of James Cook's murder of John Paz is well documented, and if you would like to learn more, I have links in the show notes. And now up next for some added depth on the processes of bookbinding and tool engraving, I'm excited to speak with bookbinder and toolmaker Brian Beidler. Brian is the founder of Beidler Made in Bloomington, Indiana. His work is inspired by historic bindings in their ability to harmonize fine craftsmanship, quirky but elegant aesthetics, and evidence of the hands that made them. Brian also creates specialized hand tools for bookbinding and its related trades, teaches a variety of bookbinding and toolmaking workshops around the country, and is the current vice president of the Guild of Bookworkers. And now please welcome Brian Beidler. So I think we actually met in PBI, right? In like 2013, I think. Yeah. Um, I just remember you even then making your own like bug salve. And I was such <laughs> like a city girl and still am. And it was so overwhelming. The first question, I'd like to know like how you got started in book binding and then how, what made you focus specifically on historical bindings? Sure. Um I would say both of those things are sort of tied up together. First got the idea to start bookbinding when I was in high school, I think as a sophomore. And we were supposed to do some kind of project in art class where we were going to deconstruct this like a, an existing book, maybe a library discard or something. And then 
turn it into some kind of sculpture. And I remember thinking in that moment, I want to do the exact opposite of that. And I want to take like the paper and turn it into a book. I mean, starting from, you know, just paper and folding it up and making books from there. And I had always kind of been drawn to older books. I'm not exactly sure why my grandparents had a few old books at their house that I would always look at. But other than that, I can't really trace my interest in like books as cool objects. I have no idea where that came from. (laughs) Then a few years later, so I didn't actually end up doing any binding in high school, but a few years later when I was in my undergrad, which is also my only degree. So I guess I could just say in college. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But we, I was reading an old book and the front cover had come off. I'd gotten it just from like a used bookstore. So I took it into the university library and just said, you know, does anyone here know how to fix this? I thought maybe they had some kind of like magic tape or something. And which is hilarious in retrospect, but Then they introduced me to the head of special collections, Marie Ferrara, who changed my life. She uh, allowed me to start coming in and learn. Once I found out she knew how to do bookbinding, I freaked out and was like more or less on my hands and knees, just being like, please teach me. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was kind of how I got my start. And most of my book education has uh, come about through a lot of trial and error, and then also a decent amount of short workshops and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so, and you mentioned your undergrad, but um, like I saw in your CV, so you actually studied chemistry. Is that right? Oh, yep. Okay, so <laughs> an interesting transition. But and then with the historical binding, can you talk a little bit about that? how would you even start with the research and and in terms of like how do you go about like replicating it or researching to get it accurate I guess basically I should also start by saying that I don't do strict historical models of like this is a 17th century English binding or something like that it's a lot of it's trying to capture the effect that old books have at least in my eye I think I really liked there's a quote from Hannah French's book on early American uh, book binders that describes old books as charming, but completely unpretentious. Um, And she's talking specifically about these two early American bindings, of course, but that's kind of like the whole effect I'm going for. There's something about when you look at an old book or like an old binding from this period, I'm talking about 17th, early 18th century where they look like these crazy elegant bindings, but then at the same time, when you get up close, there's like, you know, the lines are crooked or like the title is more dancing across the spine rather than being read in a perfect little grid. Um, And so I love those little idiosyncrasies where when you look up close, you're like, these are incredibly skilled people, but they were also working really, really fast. And so that kind of piqued my interest. And then, of course, with resources like Julia Miller's Books Will Speak Plain and all the other kind of like historic historical binding scholarship that's coming out, um, it made a lot of that information, um, you know, put it out in people's hands. And so I was able to take reference books like that. And then also I worked at a little historical library in Charleston for a few years and I had access to a lot of old books. So I was able to go in and start looking at them, try to study tool marks that I was seeing so that I could sort of understand where those were coming from. And then 
as I went after I stopped working there and I was like, Ooh, I can start doing this on my own. I was able to kind of try to put all those pieces together, I suppose. It, there's not really that. I mean, as you know, I mean, it's sort of a weird niche because it's not a strict historical model, but and it is a full leather binding with gold and all that kind of stuff. But it's also not a really fine design binding or anything. You know, it's if the book shape overall is a little bit more like a parallelogram, as far as I'm concerned, like that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so but it's just the kind of book that I'm really drawn to making. So I, mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop making it because I can't help it. <laughs> I like that description, like charming and unpretentious. It's that's, so good. That's good. It is good. <laughs> and then, so how did, where did the brass tools come in? So, yeah, I can, I mean, there's like a more romantic version and then there's also like a very practical one. The, I mean, I would aim for the romantic version, but I'll go for whatever direction you want. I'll do like an abbreviated version of both, maybe. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> so I would say that I was first drawn to those tools when, I mean, I remember the first day I walked into that, the space at the College of Charleston where I went to school for my undergrad. Uh, <laughs> and I remember seeing they had like these coffee tins just filled with the little finishing tools. And I remember just being like, oh, look at these things. They're incredible. And just, you know, even under close inspection, there's still just the detail that was involved and the skill that was needed to make something like that just kind of blew my mind. I do remember thinking in that moment, God, that would be so cool to make those. But I thought that was totally like a completely lost art. Uh, you know, everyone's favorite term. Right. Oh, that's right. a lost art. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I feel like in some ways saying something's a lost art is like a surefire way of knowing it still exists. <laughs> like, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> of course, the more practical side of it was once I, you know, moved up to Indiana. So uh, my partner started PhD here at Indiana University in Bloomington. And so that's what brought us up here, I guess, five years ago. Okay. And, um, I didn't have any money and I was like, I need, I need to make some tools. I need to do tools if I want to do tooling. And so, I mean, I had a few that I had scored from eBay or, uh, you know, other people's used tools and stuff like that, that they were willing to part with, but I wanted to be able to do more than just being limited. I feel like when it comes to book decorations, you're really limited by your tool catalog in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and like what you have access to. But I figured if I can figure out how to make these things, then, then the sky's the limit. There is a binder in California whose work I really love named Philip Dussel. And he mostly does like, I guess, a lot of uh, book restoration kind of stuff. And he's a lot more, these are the exact tool designs that were used on this style of book from this specific time period or whatever. Mm -hmm. And but he cuts all his own tools and was self-taught, taught himself engraving and is just it's amazing. His work is incredible. And so I was like, it can be done. And then also Sean Aleno, I had seen a book she had done for the University of Iowa. She cut all the finishing tools used to decorate that book as well. And so, and I also love Shauna and her work. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, she's the best. So <laughs> um, I was like, just really inspired knowing that there were some other binders doing that already. So I figured it wasn't impossible. So 
I just got some files. And as soon as they touched the brass, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's primarily self-taught then with the finishing tools. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say in general, I mean, I've had really nice feedback from people who were willing to give me pointers on like, well, make sure you're keeping this in mind. Um, I did, I guess a year or no, about two years ago, take an actual just engraving class, just kind of learning like the basic techniques of, you know, using gravers and sharpening them at the weird little angles they need to be sharpened at. Mm -hmm. And that was out at a place in Kansas. So I drove out to Kansas, took this class, but that's primarily for like doing decorative surface work with finishing tools you have to cut down really deep in order to get a clean impression with the heat and stuff it's a little it's definitely a different approach to engraving but a lot of it is the, is pretty similar so i did take an engra- oh, like a 5 day engraving class which was certainly instrumental in learning just the basics of how to engrave i like that i keep doing this with my hand even yeah, though i, I know. can see it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can see i yeah do you do custom orders as well, or are they all your own designs? No, it's a totally a mix. Um, okay. Right, the custom side of things is definitely increasing, which I love because it always pushes me in new directions to try to learn new um, ways of using the tools that I have in order to create different line effects and stuff. Because you know, when you get wrapped up in your head and it's just you, it's like. You just kind of start trying to come up with stuff, but it's easy to get caught in a rut. So yeah. custom works great because it it allows me to kind of expand the range of possibilities, I suppose. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally Hopefully. know what you mean. Um, <laughs> but sometimes I find myself producing the same book over and over again, I think. And it's just yep. until I, you know, it gets too stuck. Um, <laughs> what is the strangest tool you've had to make? Ooh, that's a good question. Um. I really like making bones, skulls and crossbones and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's good for maybe it's just the spookiness of Halloween coming up. That's making (laughs) me think of that. But in terms of a design, I actually, I still have yet to cut it, but I have to cut like a little trumpeter angel thing. And I'm really not sure how I'm going to make that happen. So it's like from a, I think someone wants it for a historical uh, use but it's like mm-hmm. from a 19th century engraving of a little angel like flying through the air holding a big brass trumpet in front. But then it's also tiny, you know, it's going to yeah. be a little over half an inch long, maybe. So it's it'll be interesting, but hopefully I can make it work. <laughs> that sounds like a lot to uh, climb into a tool. Yeah, the reason I wanted to talk to you, this is going to be, you know, Halloween episode. There was an English bookbinder, um, James Cook. And in 1832, he murdered a toolmaker. And Whoa. yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> it's such an insane, and it's also a super gory story, but you know, have you ever murdered anybody over a brass tool? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that you were that you worked on the letter locking project. Yeah. I've been so fascinated by that. I saw Jana's talk at uh, Standards. I don't know when that was. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to do a whole episode on letter locking, but can you talk about that <laughs> as a teaser? I can try. Um, so uh, yeah, thank you to Jana D'Ambrosio for letting me join the squad for a little while. I guess letter locking in general, and I hope I don't screw it up because it is very nuanced, um, mm-hmm. but it's 
more or less focuses on you know information security as it is evidenced in letters <laughs> so uh it has to do with like the physical measures that people would take to secure the information contained within a letter and so it covers this huge and Jana's worked with like people who study historical spy masters and things like that so it's kind of dealing with I don't know informational security my focus specifically was kind of on historic sealing wax recipes that was kind of my interest okay and so Jana uh, we met at paper and book intensive where you and I met um (laughs) although I can't remember which year was that when I was there as a student or when um I was peddling tools at a later time I think I think it was a participant I should say I think it was 2013 because it was the right when I started grad school yeah um okay cool cool mm -hmm. yep so that was the same year that I met Jana yeah I met Jana that year she was yeah and she was spreading like the gospel of letter locking no (laughs) (laughs) no and so she was uh you know talking about letter locking and stuff and I was like oh that's cool like I've been really interested in like old ceiling wax and she said well actually a lot of the wax I get doesn't act the same way that the wax I'm studying acted and you know if you can figure anything out let me know and so then I started sending her samples of bars of wax and my involvement kind of escalated from there and um, I'm not really really involved in the project right now just because I'm trying to you know make the books and tools happen right. um but That's so yeah cool, no though. I was I was so grateful for the experience and Jana's the best and it was super yeah. fun I, I feel like if I had to explain that it would be so much more simplified like but like in a bad way like I, I mean like because I was trying to think of the best way to explain it for someone not involved in this whole thing and I think when you're writing notes in like middle school or something and just that you can fold them in such a crazy way that you know if someone opened them like I think that's the most simplified stupidest explanation I can think of of letter looking but but it's in that same vein I think um no definitely and I probably way overcomplicated it (laughs) so it's somewhere in between what you and I just security and no no that's great and so speaking of the Guild of Book Workers, you're the vice president? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about your involvement and then also just about the Guild? Yeah, yeah. The Guild of Book Workers is um, a organization dedicated to all of the book arts. We have a journal and a newsletter and a website and probably the biggest thing not to take away from what all the other uh, people are doing for the guild um, is our event, uh, the standards of excellence seminar where we, it generally consists of four, three hour presentations that focus on some aspect of the book world. We've had paper makers, calligraphers, binders, sharing specific techniques. Sometimes the whole presentation will just be on covering or like a very specific structure or a specific type of paper, that kind of thing. But what makes that event so special, at least for me, is the opportunity to just be together with other book people where you can walk up and anyone that you meet is someone who's just as into books as you are for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it a super fun time. On top of that as well, there's also the vendor room, which is really fun because you can go around and actually know like feel the exact you know 
uh, skin that you'll be buying for your book or the exact bone tool that you want or something like that, something that feels good in your hand. But overall, it's just a ripper on good time. I absolutely, I love standards. <laughs> As the vice president, my primary job is to be sort of like the chapter liaison to the national board. So the guild is split up into several regional chapters. If they have any issues with things or something's unclear, I try to help them sort it out, which generally just means I tell them who to ask for the actual answer to the question that they have. <laughs> uh, and then my other job is dealing with scholarships for standards. So at the end of at the end of every standards, we have like a scholarship auction where we do auction for from a bunch of things that participants or attendees to the conference bring in order to raise money for the next year's scholarships. And then we all bid on them at the end of our banquet. And then the following year, I help, we see how much money we raise. So we know how many people we can send or pay to, to attend. And I help sift through those applications and stuff. It's pretty exciting. I like giving away other people's money. It's fun. I was excited to go to standards this year before, you know, this all happened. All of it. But yeah. <laughs> do you know Mark Hammond? I think you do. I used to work with him. At, yeah. Um, uh, he opened up his, um, but his own bindery in um, Georgia. So he's like, oh, oh you get cool. to like come stay during standards. And I was like, yeah. And then nothing. Anyway. Are yeah. you still in San Antonio? I am in San Antonio. Yep. Cool. Are you with Book mm -hmm. Lab too? I, yes, I was until uh, Craig Jensen retired. Um, oh. Yeah. So I stopped in August. So he's on, uh, right now he's on like, I don't know, like a six month road trip or something in his camper. Nice. For, yeah. For, um, <laughs> he's like, finally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I started my own thing lately and, you know, teaching more. And then uh, Mark, who was also my colleague there, he started his own bindery as well. And it's just exciting. Um, I saw that you teach, or you've taught this class a couple of times about pre-industrial gold tooling. And that yeah. sounds so much fun. And I want to know <laughs> what that means. Okay. So um, that is basically what I'm calling uh, tooling with egg glare without doing any kind of real layout beforehand. Um, maybe like a couple of lines with the bone folder or something just to give you a vague division of space on the book cover but I guess before kind of the industrial era you know most book covers with gold on them were um, at least like European based ones were you know they would slap the paste wash and the glare down and then gold over that and then just tool the whole cover with as many impressions as they could or whatever and then swipe away the excess gold and then you're left with the design and then of course later on during the industrial era you start to see like those big like heat stamp presses at, or block presses I think they're called maybe I can't remember. Todd Patterson help me out <laughs> um <laughs> but um I should know better I took his class at rare book school anyway but so you know that was that kind of overtook how book covers were tooled and then later on once arts and crafts movement brought back a lot of hand binding and stuff like that people were using a lot of like shellac based glares and things like that and so i really like the effect that you see on older books where it's just all over tooling where they're just sort of winging it and you see missed impressions like i have a book 
where there's uh, four fleur-de-lis or should be, and there's actually only three because they just skipped one of the corners and there's just a little empty space or where the one should be. Yeah, so I called it pre-industrial tooling because I felt like that hopefully captured that time period or the idea of that time period. But I think it also confuses people equally as often. (laughs) No, it sounds good. And I I like the, it's almost um, wabi-sabi-esque in a way where it's like the imperfections that really give it that depth or or wholeness or something. I mean, Um, that's, that's what definitely drew me to it, I think. Mm-hmm. definitely the hand is present yes <laughs> yes so what are you what projects are you currently working on right now I'm actually really working on getting my metal lathe up and running is <laughs> my big big thing right at the moment uh, because I plan on making little decorative wheels I mean so cutting the wheels you know like the little pizza cutter style oh, decorative mm-hmm. rolls and stuff like that <laughs> pizza cutter style <laughs> Charlie Weissman who many people know from PBI and stuff like that but he lives in Champaign Urbana I might have mispronounced it but in Illinois okay. and just a, like 3 or 4 hours away and so at a P, at PBI one time I mentioned I was trying to find a metal lathe and He's like, oh, I actually have an extra one, which is like <laughs> not something most people have yeah. an extra. Of. <laughs> and so he said, if you know, if you want to come pick it up, I'd love to see it go to, you know, get good use. And so that was maybe four or five years ago and I got it. And then I finally, as of yesterday, got it up and running officially. And I'm very excited because now I'll be able to turn my own brass wheels and hardware to then go and engrave them and come up with cool wheelie designs. So that's that's what I'm really excited about right now. But then I also have a batch of tools I'm working through that Mm. trumpeter angel being among them. (laughs) (laughs) Back to book binding. Is there a particular structure favorite or like a comforting Mm. structure that you like to do? Yeah. I mean, I, as, as often as you said, sometimes I feel like I'm, or as we were talking about earlier, you kind of get, feel like you get stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. I also feel like there is some degree of comfort when you're doing something you like know and are really familiar with. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And so for me, it's kind of like this catch all historic. I'm doing air quotes for everyone who can't see. <laughs> um, but like this like catch all historic European binding structure that most of my books have. I just love doing it. I love pretty much every step of the process. Maybe except for I still just edge trimming's fine but I don't really like it that much but <laughs> yeah other than that though I pretty much love every step <laughs> I I find it really funny with all the bookmakers I know there is that one thing that it's like their comfort go-to and then also that one thing that they hate <laughs> yeah. and I Ooh, what's that for you I hate setting type I hate setting type mm. I hate it more than anything and I don't <laughs> When people talk about, you know, how meditative it is and how they love that, you know, hand and to the letter and I hate it. And I, I, you know, I like, I love printing. I love Mm -hmm. the whole process, but just that one step. Can Um, you get away with like polymer plates or anything? Or is that too far? No, I do print a lot with polymer plates. I I actually rarely set type because I, you know. Because you hate it. (laughs) Yeah, because I hate it. And you also have a podcast. Yeah. 
cut the craft and yep. um, <laughs> do you want to talk about that I just like I can't ever hear the name without like still giggling at it because it's just so <laughs> silly <laughs> um sure yeah uh Basically, Cut the Craft is uh, me and a good friend of mine, Amy Umble. Amy is a woodworker, and she lives in southwest Pennsylvania slash northwest Maryland slash northeast West Virginia. It's like right on this little corner where within like a mile you could be in all three states. Anyway, not that that matters um, <laughs> for the sake of describing the show, but yeah, she's a super talented woodworker and a close friend of mine. And at the beginning of this year, just this idea popped in my head where I was like, it would be really cool to do a podcast with Amy where we just interview a bunch of different craftspeople. And so I pitched the idea to her and she was she was into it. So then we kind of went about all of the learning, all of the weird things involved with making a podcast that I never knew existed. Um, and then as you very well know, yeah. I can see you nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like we have a lot of hand gestures going on. Like when you're describing the wheels, you're like, they're this big. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> but everyone else will have to wait. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, sorry. Basically the concept is we just try to interview as many different people from as many different crafts as possible. And we come out with episodes on a biweekly basis and you can listen on any kind of podcast streaming service and uh, as well as just listen to them on our website too. How has the response been with the craft podcast? It's been great so far. I think it's kind of hard to know. I mean, we've gotten really kind feedback from people so mm -hmm. far. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like I learned so much from talking with people. Yeah, I, but I, I absolutely love it. And I, um, yeah, like I said, people from a bunch of different backgrounds so far have a lot of people have reached out and said that they're enjoying it. So I hope that that means overall it's being enjoyed. I'm just grateful anyone is willing to listen to me and Amy were like rattle on about stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then where can people find out more about your work? Um, you can visit my website, um, which is Bidler made b e i d l e r m a d e dot com, or I also have an Instagram account which is at b h Bidler. Those are the two main places, but I don't really update my website all that much. So sorry, <laughs> it's hard to manage all that stuff. Um, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. definitely. Uh, I wanted to say thank you so much for inviting me on your show because. It's an honor to be on like a book person specific <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. I really like your work and you're always fun to talk to, be around. So <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> wait, so am I going to have to wait till uh, to hear more about the murder? No, I mean, I can tell you about the murder, but he killed him with a part of his press. What? Yes. Oh, the story well, so, is so bonkers that it's, he owed the toolmaker money because he bought mm -hmm. finishing tools from him, didn't want to pay. So he went to collect payment and instead the guy killed him with like a pin from the, like the iron bar part from the press. And um, yeah, and he got caught. I mean, obviously the guy wasn't, didn't really think it through um, because he dismembered the body and stuffed him up the chimney. And started a fire. Classic which just, mis rookie <laughs> right? mistake. Started a fire, <laughs> and then um, all the you know the 
I don't think they really had a, a, an organized police force at the time, but whoever, the, the constable or whatever came over, they're like, hey, you know, you got to, your chimney is stuffed. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what happened. You know? <laughs> and then they like pull out this body and he goes, oh no, I was cutting up a, a horse to feed my dog. <laughs> like I'm dead serious. And then they're like, oh you don't, God. you don't even have a pet dog. Like you don't have a dog here. And he's like, and then he just literally <laughs> ran away. And, and then they, you know, looked at the body and it was like, you know, human body, but it, it's like, just, oh, that's Bill. Yeah, it's just, it was crazy. But it got how, so much. How did you hear about the story? Um, How did I hear about it? Actually, it, it's been in my notes for, I think, a couple of years now to want to write about it. And I actually think I heard cool. about it because, and I, oh, maybe somebody listening knows about this. So there was a print that someone did like a commemorative something print and it was it was a British printer and I cannot for the life of me remember who it was they did like a, a poster of this story and I, I think that might have been the first time I heard about it and then I've just kind of collected stuff or you know since then articles it's pretty well documented because the so the guy was caught of course and he was um, executed and he was the last person to be gibbeted. His you know, body was on display. And then this is in like 1832. And then people were like, like, this is gross, guys. Like, you know, this is this is a bad idea. And so he was the very last person, that, you know, and they changed the law about that because I mean, Whoa. this is also kind of the time period about when people were learning about sanitation also. So mm -hmm. they're like, yeah, this might not be the cleanest like, thing maybe not. we could do and not only is it you know <laughs> grotesque on that level but also just it seems gross and and being gibbeted is that when they put you like up in the cage for like birds to eat and stuff like that yeah yeah they just put them mm. on display after it's executed yeah dang that's crazy yeah it's it's pretty it's good to know a bookbinder was the last person to have to undergo that right i guess um but it's kind of funny because <laughs> i don't I don't really understand. I mean, I'm glad they mentioned he's a bookbinder because they go a lot about his book bindings too. But mm -hmm. it does seem strange. And I almost want to know more about how bookbinders were seen then because I felt like it was brought up so much in the or in the documentation where I feel like if there was another profession that had murdered someone, I don't feel like right. the profession was thrown in as much as it was for this guy. And like so it was either like, yeah it was like either reinforcing some some kind of stereotype that existed right, about right. bookbinders or it was like shattering the expectation of like no most bookbinders displayed an incredible sense of decorum and how <laughs> did this one do such a terrible thing right right I, and I, I don't I think don't... that was the case but maybe <laughs> no I really don't know like how I, I feel like people don't really talk about that as much about like how they were seen by the rest of society because yeah I, I felt like it was brought up a lot whereas if they were I don't know a, a, I can't even think of a, another profession for some weird reason that, that doesn't have to do with books <laughs> which is terrible I was going to say a librarian but that's also related to books I don't know <laughs> man I gotta get out more I think <laughs> yeah you and uh, me both uh mm -hmm. thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show it was an honor Thank you. I'm, I'm um, sorry. You can't see I'm smiling. I was going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks. For more information about Brian's work, you can visit BeidlerMade.com, spelled B-E-I-D-L-E-R, or follow him on Instagram at bhbeidler. I'd like to thank Rachel Lancaster of the Magnificent Midlife Podcast, Gus Rogers of Wales Wang Tang Sudu, 
Mike Williams, and Brian Garth for lending their voice talents for our murderous reenactments. As always, you can follow me and my work at coyotebonespress.com, or I'm on Instagram at coyotebonespress, and Books in the Wild has... (laughs) And Books in the Wild has its... What? I'm almost done. Books in the Wild has its own site at booksinthewild.com, or on Instagram at booksinthewildpodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and have a very happy and safe Halloween. What is it that you need?